Hello there, and thank you for spending some time with me, Steve Lai, on CNA Correspondent. As we count down to the end of an eventful 2023, our podcast teams are on an end-of-season break for December, so we thought we'd take the opportunity to return to one of our most popular episodes about life aboard a warship in the South China Sea. On deck for this one is our top gun, Leong Wai Kit. Listen to his first-hand account as I ask him about the living conditions, the food, and what it takes to live and work at sea in one of the busiest and most contested waterways in the world. And on a personal note, it is with a great sense of gratitude that my time at CNA has come to an end. I'd like to thank you for placing your trust in me over the last 11-plus years across all of CNA's platforms, especially here on CNA Correspondent. Take care, and all the best for 2024. You're listening to a CNA podcast. All right, we're just about set up. Uh, Waikit, thank you for speaking with me today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Steve. All right. Well, let's, uh, I thought we'd start this episode a little differently. Are you ready for some quick-fire word association? Always ready for some fun, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to hear. Okay, I'll start with something, and you give me the first three words that come to your mind. Okay. We'll warm up with an easy one. Okay. Leong Waikit. Handsome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not laughing, honestly. I'm not. <laughs> Two more. Kind. Funny. You see how I'm taking this chance to sell myself, Steve? Yes, and so eligible as well. <laughs> eligible bachelor in CNA. Is that right? Fair yeah, to say? yeah, yeah. Okay, next one. CNA correspondent. Work. Research. Fun. South China Sea. Complicated. Uh, China and um, warships. <laughs> you, and that brings us nicely. USS Nimitz. Uh, huge, crowded, exciting. Okay, thanks, Waikit. We're off to the perfect start. The U.S. is keen to flex its muscles in some of the world's most hotly contested waters. Now, the aircraft carrier Nimitz and the strike group it leads enter the South China Sea some two weeks ago where it will carry out patrols to demonstrate America's commitment to the Indo-Pacific. My colleague Shahida Othman there explaining the Nimitz's arrival in the region in early January. It comes at a time of increased military presence in the area, with China, the UK, France and Australia also active in the disputed waters. Experts have warned of the risk of miscalculation, especially with no unified code of conduct. And that brings me back to Waikit. Waikit, you've just come back from the unique experience of actually being on the USS Nimitz. Uh, tell me how you managed that sort of access and what was it like landing on an aircraft carrier in the South China Sea? Right, Steve, it was basically an invite by the US Embassy, but journalists can basically write into any embassy in Singapore, and if they have a warship visiting the area, you can make a request to go on board that warship. Uh, it's funny you ask how it's like landing and taking off from the aircraft because it's very exciting. We took a Greyhound, which is basically a carrier for cargo, from one of the military bases in Singapore. Two hours it took us to reach the South China Sea where the USS Nimitz was. And yes, it's a huge aircraft, but it's not built for long taxiing. So you cannot have the luxury of, you know, taxiing for long. I was going to say, it's like a really short runway. Exactly. It's very abrupt. Exactly. Very, very abrupt indeed. Because as we were descending, the sailors on board the ship will have to manually force the plane to an immediate halt. So... I watched it from an outside point of view. So when the aircraft is landing, 
the plane will lower what's known as a tail hook at the back of the plane and the function of that tail hook is for it to basically catch one of four cable wires on the warship and when it does catch it, it will halt immediately. So you can imagine that kind of impact. Upon takeoff, you will go from zero to more than 200 km per hour in just a couple of seconds. And I managed to take a video filming me and my cameraman's reactions. I'm going to play it for you to see. Of okay. course, our viewers can only hear the background noise of Okay, me. I'll do my best to describe what's <laughs> okay. happening. Okay, so this is moments before we took off. Okay, you're looking quite comfortable there. And there you see the impact. Yes, your head's just shot forward. Exactly. And if you notice, I was smiling. But in fact... I was smiling because I couldn't have any other expression. In that four seconds or so, I was frozen. I couldn't do anything except capture my last facial expression. And that's the, the kind of impact that you have. So it must, I must say, it's quite the experience, Steve. Remarkable to see some impact on your body just coming to that halt so quickly. Yeah. Now, fill us in on some of the details so we can get a better idea of what it's like on an aircraft carrier of this size. How big is it? How many people are on board? How long are they at sea for? And obviously the question of, of food has to, <laughs> has to come into play as well. Yeah, one of the first things we did when we landed was to have lunch. But Steve, I didn't have much of an appetite because the moment I landed, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say this, I felt seasick. So I didn't eat much. But it is huge. Unfortunately, we didn't have a drone shot of the aircraft carrier, but it's roughly the size of a cruise ship. There are about 5,000 people on board, so it's relatively crowded. I didn't get a chance to visit the kitchen, but you can imagine because these sailors are out from, say, between six and eight months. So the kind of storage of food has to be massive. Six to eight months at sea. Exactly. So one thing good is that some of them do have access to Wi-Fi, so you're not exactly always very bored. Of course, when we went on board a ship, we didn't have Wi-Fi access. So I went to the cafeteria to eat and we ate exactly what the sailors would eat. I would say it's a relatively a good restaurant standard kind of food. I had pita bread, I had sweet broccoli salad. But like I said, the food was good. I just didn't have much of an appetite. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shame. I hope it... How long were you on the boat for in total for this story? Some three to four hours. Okay, okay. And I want to ask if you brought your aviators and if you now have a call sign because these kinds of ships always make me think of the movie Top Gun. And what else stood out for you or surprised you about your experience on board? Well, Steve, you might be surprised if I say this, but... I have never watched Top Gun. <laughs> Everybody whom I tell I wow. went on board a USS aircraft, they say, oh, Top Gun, Top Gun, Top Gun. I know of the movie, but I have not watched it. And you haven't seen the sequel Maverick either then? None. <laughs> wow. But during lunch, there was some casual conversation. One of the journalists asked the sailor, how accurate is Top Gun? That was the next question I wanted to ask you. And he said, very accurate. And that was when I said, okay, Waikid, you must watch Top Gun because I've already been on a warship. What stood out for me immediately was that there's so many layers or levels of stairs and they're quite steep. And of course, there are signs telling the crew to not run. But you can see how expert they are. They've spent so long at sea. They go up and down going bop, 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 very fast. The other thing that stood out for me was that the crew members who are married, they don't wear their actual wedding bands. Because I've noticed many of them wearing rubber, rubber wedding bands, some full black, some red, some colourful, some in turquoise. And I asked them, is this compulsory? But they said, no, uh, it's really because for the safety of their work, 
they would rather not have actual jewellery but use a rubber wedding band. Oh, so interesting. Exactly. The other thing I noticed was there are quite a number of sailors with tattoos. Of course, the story is that traditionally, sailors are out at sea for so long, they have nothing better to do, they tattoo each other. But some also tell me that it's for very practical and perhaps grim reasons because your tattoos identify you uniquely. So if you're a sailor, unfortunately, if things do happen, that sort of becomes your identity. Wow. Wow. That, I never realised that that would be something that would be considered. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so who did you speak to while you were there and what did they say about the job? Oh, they were all very passionate about what they did. They all believed in their training. There's a range of jobs on board, including media liaison officers. And they're not just there to meet journalists. They're in charge of broadcasting messages to the crew. I'm told they even have a weekly bingo session that gets the crew very excited. Of course, they're also very serious jobs. Even though they're not actively patrolling, some of them on board are actually doing drills. So... I was on the landing deck when I saw an actual drill taking place. Someone was carrying a mannequin. They went on board a chopper that went out to sea. I'm told that the mannequin is supposed to be a victim and there will be divers going into the South China Sea to retrieve that mannequin as part of your search and rescue mission. Oh, so I suppose they all have jobs to do. I mean, they're on the boat for so long, months at a time, but they have, you know, an eight-hour day shift. Is that how it works? I don't know how long they work, but <laughs> if, you're, if you're stuck at sea for eight months... You may as well be doing the, something. <laughs> the hours no longer count. <laughs> I suppose that is very true. So you've told me a little bit about the roles they play and the job they do on board. What about the bigger picture? Are they aware or what do they think about that? Right. So the bigger picture is really for them to give this sense of stability and, and peace. Now, I chatted with some of the sailors. Of course, they tell me that politics aside, what they're really trained to do is to give the region peace and stability and they are trained to de-escalate situations. And in that conversation, you get a sense that they are very passionate with what they do. If you take politics out of the picture and just focus on what they do, it's a very meaningful job. Thanks, my kid. And that sets us up nicely to talk about the bigger picture at play in the South China Sea, with nations big and small from far and wide competing for influence, dominance and resources in one of the world's busiest shipping lanes. Are you looking for ways to make your money work harder for you? Or need tips on saving, investing and making financial decisions? Join me, Sarah Alcaldi, on Money Talks, CNA's top personal finance podcast. From investment basics to the FIRE movement and legacy planning, I look at financial trends and news stories that matter to you. Check out our complete playlist on the CNA app, Apple and Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also follow us or subscribe for new weekly episodes. The Chinese are deploying their military assets into the region now because they can. They are now able to secure whatever claims they make in the South China Sea and back it up with actual military assets instead of just rhetoric. What we've noticed is that the moment a US warship appears, these Chinese ships will also tend to disappear, which shows that the US military presence indeed has a, some sort of a deterrent effect on China's behaviour in the region. That's Rizwan Ramat, Principal Defence Analyst at Jane's. He's part of Waikit's story on his visit to the Nimitz, which you can find on cna.asia. 
He'd go on to say that the Indo-Pacific, that includes the South China Sea, is the fastest militarizing region in the world, despite what's going on in Ukraine. You're back with me, Steve Lai and Leong Waikit. Waikit, why is everyone so interested in the South China Sea? Well, Steve, like you said, it's one of the busiest shipping areas. In fact, one third of the world's ships pass through that area. So for economic reasons, it's also believed that there's a lot of natural gas and resources in the South China Sea. And you can imagine if you have access to that vast body of water, it's thriving for fisheries. But on the political and defense side, I'm told that perhaps China uses that area to park their submarines. So a lot is at stake here for people who have claims on the South China Sea. Let's talk about that country then that's staking the biggest claim in the South China Sea. Tell us about China's claim. Right. Now, China insists that it is the first to discover that vast body of water and it is the first to exercise sovereignty and jurisdiction. It even cites maps that show that the part of water belongs to China. And of course, there's this controversial nine-dash line, which is basically an imaginary boundary that China draws on its map, which marks out some 90% of the South China Sea and it claims that as their own. Of course, it's controversial because other claimants will say, hey, your nine-dash line eats into my territory. And which are the other claimants in Southeast Asia? We've got Vietnam, Brunei, Malaysia, Indonesia. Territories also like Taiwan are claiming parts of the South China Sea. Yeah, and the Philippines also plays a part in it as well because, as we mentioned, several Southeast Asian nations have claims to the body of water. In 2016, an international tribunal ruled overwhelmingly in favor of the Philippines in determining that major elements of China's claim to the South China Sea, including its nine-dash line that you mentioned, and recent land reclamation activities as well and other activities in the Philippine waters were unlawful. But they aren't the only claimants. Right, and that's the problem. The other claimants also have access to warships. And when you send your warships in that area, there's always a potential for clash. In fact, there had been clashes in the past. One of the more significant ones was back in 1988 when the navies of Vietnam and China clashed. And in that incident, some 70 Vietnamese soldiers were killed. These days, we also see military drills on, on the South China Sea, US warships, China warships, and there's always the potential for miscalculation that could escalate into conflicts. There are big regional players. There are small regional players. But there are also big Western powers that are increasingly showing interest in the South China Sea. The US, as you've seen firsthand with the Nimitz, is taking it incredibly serious as well. Yeah, that's right. Like I said, when I was speaking to the sailors, they take their job very seriously. Of course, the big picture plan is for Washington to continue sending military ships to this part of the world to show its presence. Earlier, we heard from my interviewee, Rizwan Rama from Jane's. He's a defense analyst. He also told me that the presence of US warships does have a deterrent factor because he's noticed that when the US warships turn up, the China vessels sort of disappear. But he also mentions that the presence of warships tend to attract other warships because they also want to come in and see what's going on to also show some presence. Therein lies the problem because there is no unified code of conduct for the navies to adhere to. So, for example, if, Steve, your warship comes to what I think is my territory, I may tell you to back off. Uh, but if you don't, I may then start to fire, say, a volley of water cannons. And if you take it the wrong way, you may retaliate by firing the cannons. And then if this goes to and fro, it could escalate into something even more serious. And these are examples of how conflicts could be miscalculated and escalate into skirmishes at sea, rather. Yes, and the fear is that that could then escalate into a, a bigger conflict. 
China and ASEAN have been negotiating a South China Sea code of conduct for years. You just mentioned it just then to manage sort of the long-standing tensions. Are we any closer to that becoming a, a thing? I think not at all. In the last two years, of course, COVID sort of slowed everything. But even without COVID, many analysts don't think that it will make any progress at all. China and the claimants signed that Declaration of Conduct more than 20 years ago. And that's just a first step document that paves the way for the actual Code of Conduct. And there are some key reasons that analysts point out why this is not going to go anywhere. First, they'll need to agree on a geographical scope. So, for instance, Vietnam will say they want to include the Paracel Islands and China would say no. And then Philippines will want to include the Scarborough Shoal and China would say no. The other issue is the questions of a do's and don'ts of the conduct. China, of course, will not want to have its hands tied, so it doesn't want people to ban its activities. And, of course, there's also a question of whether the code of conduct should be legally binding. Now, most of the ASEAN claimants are okay with that, but China, on the other hand, not want to be legally bound by the conduct. Add to that, China is more fond of negotiating one-on-one -on -one with the claimants rather than have negotiations with them as a whole. So where does that leave us then? As we move forward, as you know, countries around the region are looking to invest more in their militaries, there's more interest in the South China Sea, more interest in Southeast Asia in general. What do you see happening? Wow. Well, I read a quote somewhere by a very senior diplomat that when things escalate, they pretend to discuss the South China Sea Code of Conduct. And when things are at peace, they sort of leave it as it is. So in a way, the Code of Conduct is sort of seen as you know, a tool to manage, if you will, emotions or political willpower from all claimants. But at the end of the day, what this really tells us is that security is such a, a vulnerable element because if all parties get heated up, we get affected too. I mean, South China Sea is very far from Singapore, some two hours plane ride, out of sight, out of mind. But if something happens outside, it's going to affect our lives. Our shipping routes are going to be disrupted. The economy is going to suffer. So I think that's quite important for us to bear in mind. Yeah, I think the lessons we've learned from Ukraine is that even a conflict between two nations has worldwide ramifications. Waikit, you've just helped our listeners really appreciate what's going on in the South China Sea, and there are a lot of elements to it. What would you say is the biggest thing that they should think about when they think about this waterway? I think it's important to not take security for granted. I mean, it's a big motherhood statement, but... If you think about it, everything is interlinked. So if we take a plane and we fly and we see a body of water, just remember that there can be potential clashes that happen and therefore security is something that we cannot take for granted. Thank you, Waikid. It's been a pleasure to speak to you as always. Pleasure is mine, Steve. Now go and watch Top Gun. <laughs> as I'm sure you've realised, there's no easy fix to the South China Sea conundrum. So many nations with so many competing interests and alliances. It's hard to see a solution or even a code of conduct that will satisfy all claimants. Conflict and competition is often seen as a zero-sum game. For one side to win, another has to lose. But as we've seen with Ukraine and Russia, once the lines of battle have been crossed, there are no winners, only losers. The TV version CNA Correspondent airs on CNA every Wednesday at 9.30pm. You can also watch it whenever you like on cna.asia. Do like and subscribe to this podcast version that takes you behind the scenes with our correspondents. And thank you for listening. Our podcast team is made up of Sai Ye Win, Crispina Robert, Kara Ong, and me, Steve Lyon.